Hello, dear patron. Here's the continuation of our interview with Adam Tooze, followed by The After Party, where Phil, George, and myself discuss some of the broader themes emerging from the interview. So here's Phil pressing Adam on the question of crashing out of the EU. There's a quick follow-on question and a kind of a larger question. Um, is a conscious effort to leave for a country like Italy, if crashing out, there is a significant probability that it might happen, wouldn't withdrawal be better than um, than kind of, uh, uh, you know, crashing out happening? But the larger question, I suppose, is surely on the terms of your own account, this kind of driving, you know, driving in a foggy night, I think, as you put it just, just now, in the circumstances of, like you say, kind of globality and an Anthropocenic view of history, I mean, surely that you run out of road at some point or you do end up crashing and isn't the um Take shouldn't your precise, yeah. yeah shouldn't it shouldn't it be precisely that we should be trying to um aspire to more um or that simply the kind of the um the driving in the foggy night of the last 30 years won't do anymore okay so on the on the first point you know you know if you if you are on the, you know, if you if you get to the point where you where crashing out is a distinct possibility, you should definitely have a plan. Yeah. And as they did in the Greek case, several. But you know, I'm as you know, so persuaded that really crashing out is is and it's not just a bad option; it's also completely avoidable. There's really no reason why it should happen. And in fact, there are lots of ways in which you could, in fact, make the Eurozone work much better than it does for so for Italy or Greece. So my mind goes in all of those kind of directions. Of course, it's true that, yes, if you face the real risk of crashing out, you should have a plan. And if you get to the point where you are willy nilly going to leave, then clearly it would be better to do some uh, do so under some kind of direction. Yeah, yeah. we can all agree on that. Um, the one instance that we have, the, the, the Greek case, um, those closest to the scene, who I believe to be fairly good faith actors, actually, just found it that, you know, the balance of the evidence they were presented with suggested to them that the course that they took, as politically painful as it no doubt was for them, was the right one to take. So we maybe leave that there. Yeah. The, the bigger point that you ask, um, um, I don't know whether it has a simple answer. I mean, uh, um, certainly the vista that the that 2020 opens up to us is that this was a trial run this was nothing more than a wake-up call really for the sorts of risks that we could face in the future this was a big pandemic but it was not a very lethal pandemic or a very nasty one and we didn't cope at all well with it yeah. um and millions and millions and millions of people have died now. It's now become a big demographic event as well. Once upon a time, you could say, oh, well, you know, it really isn't, but that just doesn't wash anymore. And the one we have, at least in the privileged parts of the world, you know, established a modicum of control over it, but at huge cost. Um, and so, I mean, I, I mean, for, as far as I can see, all we can reliably say we can do is develop new circuits for management of various types and massively expand our capacity, the reserve capacities that we have for coping, which in the monetary sphere we have done to a considerable extent. And we need to expand that for other areas as well. I take your question to be, you know, should we not aspire to some more structural transformation? And my question to you would be, A, in what direction? 
and B, by what means, with what political force? Um, and I, I'm, I'm unclear about the answer. I mean, I can, I can specify to you various types of crisis fighting mechanism we should definitely aspire to. Yeah. And I, in fact, can even within the PMC, isn't it called, the professional managerial class and, yes. <laughs> you know, allied interests, I can start mapping for you configurations and coalitions that might be interested in moving that. So then I feel like this is, you know, both a vision and it, we answer the question of agency. So we avoid, as it were, the accusation of utopianism fundamentally. Yeah. When it when it comes to the other side of this argument, the structural transformation thing, I mean, one can applaud the ambition. Clearly, it would be better to get out of this hamster wheel. But but how? And where to? And if you look at the global scene, you know, we just aren't done with economic growth. There are too many, too many poor yeah. people who need huge leaps forward in their material advancement. We need to massively raise their energy consumption, not lower it. Yeah. yeah. Um, Absolutely. And so getting off the hamster wheel in some of those ways, which are so easily invoked, frankly, within the, the more comfortable groups of the advanced economies is just, I mean, it's not just utopian, it's bad utopianism. <laughs> and, and furthermore, it's also, it's sort of pre-colonial, I mean, it's colonial thing. I mean, it's just, it's weird. Like we don't control this. I mean, the yeah. fundamental thing about the modern world is that modern economic growth has become multicentric, polycentric. It is driven from all over the place, all over the map. It is the essential thing to understand about our current condition is that the West has been radically provincialized. We no longer control this thing. There are certain elements of it does. We have, you know, the America has overweening military power. The Fed is still the center of the monetary system. But then after that, you start running out pretty quickly yeah. of, of like Western centered networks. Yeah. And and the growth machine is not one that can be switched off. So, yeah. so like, so that's that's where I you know that's why yeah. I I can I can I can entirely see where you're coming from. It it seems a poor sort of thought that leads you to you know the sort of place I've ended up in. Uh, I get it. I understand why people are impatient with it, but um, I I just don't understand where that where that. And I say this, you know, I mean, if there was a sort of revolutionary agent that you could point to, then then I would be less you know convinced of this. But sure. but, but what is it? I, so I suppose my view is in terms of the, I mean, I, obviously I don't have a revolutionary agent to point to. I suppose That's my fine. view I mean, is... Like, <laughs> oh, it's uh, disappointing, yeah. Phil, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah really. I'm sorry. I'm sorry How do you get it. up in the morning? <laughs> I know. Well, indeed. And I'm sorry to break it to our listeners. But the um, I suppose from my point of view, it seems to me that these... You know, as I'm certainly convinced of the globality of our condition, and it seems to me the only way is kind of reculer pour mieux sauter, you know, kind of withdrawal in order to leap forward, because and that withdrawal requires greater domestic legitimacy at the national level. Okay. Um, and Go there's ahead. no, you know, there's no, so, and if that requires kind of disruption to some of these um, kind of institutions, global institutions that have developed over the last 30 years of neoliberalism, then it's a cost, at least that I, I think we should be willing to bear. But this goes to our next um, our next question, which is that you've taken issue with our presentation of things at BangaCast, given that we put the, we kind of give a story in national terms. Um, and in particular, that this might miss the way in which global politics has kind of 
gone beyond the confines of the nation state. And this has been a particular centerpiece um, of your of the your book on the financial crisis crashed. And you've also just touched upon it now, um, specifically about the role of the Federal Reserve. Mm-hmm. So you have an, a kind of a national central bank, which has come to act de facto as a global central bank. So yeah. kind of extru- extruded beyond the US. Um, so I wondered if you could maybe paint a bit more of a picture for us about how you think these the again this kind of question of asymmetry i mean how do you resolve that problem of a global central bank which has no um underlying political system in which it's based from which it can kind of draw the legitimacy on which it is supposed to function it's a great question it's a very pressing question it was one that people were very concerned about by I mean people i mean i you know i've had conversations with folks at the imf who were extremely anxious about precisely this issue Evolving. In other words, you have a very nationalist American president, you have a GOP, the Republican Party that's on the warpath in Congress. Would they permit the Fed to do the sorts of global actions necessary to stabilize the world economy in the event of a sort of shock that we, in fact, then did experience in 2020? Yeah. And it turns out the answer is absolutely yes. You know, it turns out there hasn't been a president probably ever that took more easily to the, you know, turn the money taps on, the money printer go kind of logic than Trump did, as long as the checks had his name on them. He was all yeah. good, right? Um, and they play Ted Cruz, who is the real problem here in the Senate quite well and kept him quiet. And it limited certain things. So the, I don't know whether you've heard, but this week the IMF has been rolling out this issuance of uh, special drawing rights, SDR, IMF substitute dollars. The IMF basically prints a bunch of bank credits. And they wanted, the Coalition of African and European leaders wanted to do that during the 2020 crisis and the US Treasury vetoed it. So so those are those are the two sides of the coin. On the one hand, as it were, a populist, expansive, nationalist American president for whom anything that's good that makes the S&P 500 go up. Yeah. In a world in which a large part of the S&P 500 are globalized American corporations that have an integral interest in the welfare of the global welfare, the prosperity, development, growth, profit of the global economy. Yeah. And their allies uh, around the world are networked with them. You know, insofar as Trump targets the S&P 500, he targets global capitalism and the problem collapses. Yeah. Right. On the other hand, when it's an issue of will the IMF be allowed to issue extra liquidity to the world's economy, it turns out that a lone junior, I think he is, uh, senator from Texas, who's on a maverick right-wing rant in 2020, um, can veto that proposal, even if it comes from the assembled you know, pomp and ceremony of Europe and Africa, because it will give some extra liquidity to Iran and Venezuela. Yeah. Mm. And it turns out also to the Taliban. Um, <laughs> and the Taliban have just been denied their allocation of $440 million, which is going to be disastrous for the folks in Afghanistan. Um, so those are two sides, right? And 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 it's very it's it's very it's a very uneasy balance. Yeah. And we have seen in recent years, and as tension between the United States and Russia, and tension between United States and China has escalated, and and America has resumed its economic war on Iran. Um, that um, this has provoked real dissent, not just as it were from the left or from the victims, the immediate victims, but from folks in Europe, for instance, business interests in Europe, who just find it intolerable that the United States should be able to dictate whether or not they can do business in Iran. So within, as it were, the capitalist system, 
opposing poles of business interest are increasingly irked by the extent to which America can, in fact, in that second phase, when it's not being the sugar daddy and just pumping dollars out to the global system, when it's actually trying to instrumentalize the global system for American national strategic purposes, as they understand them, that really runs up against opposition within the centers of capital accumulation in Europe in particular. And there's been very active talk in Europe as a result about creating, as it were, systems which are not vulnerable to American pressure mm -hmm. in this way. It never goes anywhere. Yeah. Why not? Because what holds the global dollar system together is not unpolitical, because it would be naive to call it unpolitical, but it's a sort of sub-politics of global capital. Yeah. In other words, it's the sense that it's in your interest, you want to affirmatively be bolted into that network. In the way that, say, Petrobras in Brazil has a distinct interest in issuing debt in dollars, being recognized yeah. by Wall Street, having major banks underwrite its debt issuance, even if it doesn't actually need the dollars, it just wants to be, wants to have the club membership card. It gives it a little bit of protection within Brazil against the kind of things and the demands that, yeah. are made on, that might be made on it locally. It doesn't want to be subject to those demands. It needs to be able to say to folks in Brasilia, look, are you sure you want to do this? Because the people in Wall Street aren't going to like it. This gives them leverage and wiggle room, right? Mm. So that's what holds this network together. It's not foisted on the world by the US. Yeah, um, It's grown out of the operation of PMC, corporate, global, capital accumulation worldwide, all over the world, Indonesia, Brazil, Turkey, you name it. Yeah. It's that network. And that's what holds it together. And the central bankers are spawned out of that same network, trained in the same universities, cycling yeah. through the same revolving doors. And so unsurprisingly, it's really close knit. So I suppose, I mean, you've made the case about peak globalization kind of not being, um, it's still kind of prolonged since the crisis and this condition of globality. But do you expect or do you see at least perhaps already developing a tension then between this um, the strong kind of connection to the dollar system, like you say, around the world, uh, the revolving doors of these um, of these uh, the people who staff these institutions on the one hand and on the other hand the developing kind of emergency responses the ac emergency actions of states at the national level um efforts to revive industrial policy efforts to reshore, su reshore supply lines um so i i don't think the reshoring of supply lines is going to go very far right the mm. national industrial policy will be really e interesting to see um how so far you think it goes. you think it might it might go some distance then but 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 what I would expect to have happen, you see, is that Wall Street, this is the genius of Daniela Gabor's idea, right, about the Wall Street consensus. So it's the Wall Street consensus, not the Washington consensus. The Washington consensus was about governments being disciplined by the IMF. Yeah. The Wall Street consensus is the IMF training governments around the world to be good parties for you know stand up adults in the room consenting yep. party deals with the major heavy hitting capital interests of wall street the black rocks the jp morgans of this world and the idea there is not as it were to subordinate local sovereigns but to 
institute their sovereignty as capable managers of crises which are bound to be decentralized, bound to be complex, and can't really be run from the center. So what you want is Brazil to have, I don't know, what is it, like $300 billion in foreign exchange reserves. You want a bunch of economists in the central bank who totally understand how to make swap lines and various types of foreign exchange manipulation work, tightly networked with the US, um, which gives them autonomy. You know, in a crisis, Brazil acts independently. This isn't, as it were, um, uh, a simple in, uh, subordination, but you constitute capacities mm. at that national level. And I don't see any reason why degrees of um, localization of various types shouldn't be go hand in hand with that. In a sense, what they've done is localize central bank functions. Um, and I don't see any reason why that toolkit shouldn't be expanded to certain sorts of industrial policy. We certainly, when we're talking about, as it were, green modernization, which is one of the yeah. new driving agenda interests of global capitalism, um, it's got to look like that, right? Everyone's got to have their own national energy policy programs of various types. Brazil's will obviously be completely different from Turkey's, but you can see the interest in BlackRock, of BlackRock in both of them. Yeah. Um, well, actually, maybe that'll take us on to uh, our very final question, on to climate change, um, which, again, is something that sort of could say haunts your book. And if the coronavirus is a sort of preview of the climate crisis in, in several ways, I suppose, is there a risk that, as with the lockdowns, that the dominant response to climate change is one that ends up shifting risks and burdens onto the poor, and the poor both within rich states as well as as well as globally? I mean, so I guess getting be more explicit, I guess, about what my concern would be is that without a shift in the balance of class power, the cure may end up seeming as bad as the disease, or at the very least that it would prevent their developing any sort of legitimacy for, for the cure itself. It's conceivable. And I guess if you wanted to run that kind of argument, you'd cite the Giojone example, right? Where yeah, know, the French government yeah. decides to slap a heavy tax on diesel that, you know, dudes who drive white cat white vans get this is a thing in Europe. I don't know whether it is in Brazil, but like uh, the vans <laughs> always seem to be white. Um It's a very British um, reference, yeah, I think. It, it is <laughs> it, it is a British reference, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So so but um and it's also possible that you could have a sort of symbolic politics of climate that was all about repressing bad working class habits, mm. um, no doubt. But the thing about the climate problem is that it isn't really amenable to that kind of solution, right? Because the climate problem actually results from emissions. And the emissions are hugely concentrated in the centers of power and wealth. Those are the people making the emissions. Um, and the decisions that have to be taken to restructure the global energy system have to be taken largely in those centers. It's actually quite a centralized system. It really isn't like the logic of an epidemic where any two people bumping each other on the street can pass it to each other, right? So which democratizes it and then requires, you could argue, the sort of repressive response that that you're, you're criticizing. You, you can't, you know, Insofar as you're serious about solving the crisis, the, the, the climate crisis, you, you can't start like that. That won't get you anywhere, right? Because the the concentration of of of, of consumption um, emissions is hugely stacked at the top, and um, 
the concentration of power in the infrastructural systems of energy is also immensely centralized, right? The, the, the biggest, it's the company, I mentioned Petrobras earlier on, it's the Saudi Aramcos of this world. You know, it's even, even, it isn't even Exxon, BP and Shell anymore that, that, that drive this story. Um, so you could have a symbolic politics somehow of repressed consumption and w which could go in that direction. But insofar as this is actually a real attempt to address the crisis, it's difficult to see how that mm. really works. Now, are there regressive distributional consequences to decarbonization? Of course there are, especially if it's driven through price mechanisms, which, which is why no one seriously advocates price mechanisms without offsets. In the form that, for instance, say in Brazil, you had those, what are they called, social bursaries or whatever that were handed out last year during the lockdown and yeah. provided, as it were, a cash flow. That kind of offsetting mechanism, as it were, repression here, uh, offsetting, offsetting material compensation on the other side is the absolute minimum that you need to steer your way through the regressive implications of this. But but, but no, in terms of actually holistic solutions to the climate crisis, it has to it, it has to concern that top ten percent, broadly speaking, of the income and wealth distribution globally, um, because it, it's 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 their consumption that does it. It's it's their decision making that does it, and it's their wealth that's invested in these centres. So, insofar as we're talking about a kind of green modernisation strategy, it really does fall in the laps of that group. Is my yeah. contention anyway? Yeah, absolutely. Though I, I suppose if we're, as you, um, you know, we're in agreement about this about the need for growth, that the growth story isn't done or or can't be done yet. Um, that having that with a decarbonization strategy at the same time as not continuing with the mass upward distribution of of wealth and income, um, it's very hard to square that without. At the same time, some rebalancing of, of class power, I would imagine, or some democratization. I mean, I would agree to the extent that if it, so I think, you know, the, the likeliest scenario is this doesn't get in any way resolved and we steer towards climate apocalypse, I mean, mm. by far and away the most likely outcome. The, the sort of enlightened elements within the ruling elites globally are attempting to formulate a green modernization strategy were they to pull it off it would be an achievement of you know what i would call something like keynesian managerialism of a type we've not yet seen yeah so, so I, I agree with you to the extent that it seems unlikely but that's because in a sense i regard the most likely outcome as being fairly disastrous um uh, uh, something that involved a more profound shift in the balance of class forces might indeed have a better chance of doing this. Um, but that just brings us back to the question of the historical agent. Where is the agent mm. for that? Um, and even people like Andreas Malm, who like I have enormous respect for as an analyst and just as a brilliant intellectual and a extraordinarily creative historical thinker, will say out loud, this is a diagnosis of a revolutionary problem with no revolutionary subject. Yeah. Well, I think that's actually a good place to leave it, to, to come back to one of our favorite themes, I suppose. Um, Adam, thank you very much. This has been delightful, yeah, and I would have loved to much, carry Adam. on for another couple of hours. <laughs> it's a great pleasure, and I hope at some occasion we have the chance to do that over, Absolutely. over beer or something. All right, so we're back. It's myself, Alex 
George and Phil. Uh, George, who did was following your, along. Did you forget your name there, Alex? I, I did. I had to pause for a second. Um, there was just so much information that, that I took right. in right there that I uh, forgot my own name. There's only so much room for everything in there. Uh, George, you were following along. What did you make of that? Yeah, I mean, it's a, such a wide-ranging conversation. I think there were a couple of things which really stood out and obviously these you know the 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 first of these is uh, i guess adam's expertise in talking about central banks and how those global financial institutions were weaved into his narrative that was absolutely that was that was great and i think the other was just i think this is still something which i i personally don't don't think there's been a definitive you know account of the you know social theory a political theory a, a history of um of covid and this you know maybe this is the closest that that we we have to this and you know the, it's difficult to write a history of the present world you're still still living in it but this idea that the you know that these lockdowns were just really something staggering and it wasn't surveillance capitalism it wasn't the kind of authoritarian state it wasn't this kind of humanitarian explanation morality over the economy it really was kind of coming out of this black hole of of a lack of governance as, as adam um put it in a, a you know a desperate flight forward to resolve questions that couldn't be solved otherwise it mean i mean to have that explanation of of lockdowns in in ultimately in in some fundamental contradictions of the global economic system i think is a um is a perspective or or viewpoint which is extremely important Phil. Yeah, I was surprised, I suppose, by um, I didn't quite expect Adam to be so pessimistic about the climate. So um, off the back of analyses that he's done, I think, and conversations he's had with the um, Cambridge political economist, uh, Helen Thompson, at least the ones that I've listened to, um, you know, he indicates, I mean, that the scale of the kind of the economic reorganization and the amount of wealth that needs to be invested in order to meet the challenges of the climate crisis isn't isn't in fact on the scale of some other, you know, kind of say wartime spending uh, that we've seen before. Um, so I'm surprised that he, you know, that he's so pessimistic about it. And I suppose that's his assessment of the difficulty of constructing what he sees as the necessary political coalitions to underpin that kind of shift. Um, but he, at the end of the day, I mean, I suppose he's, um, you know, he's struggling with the same problem that we all seem to be struggling with, um, the lack of a political agent to enact the kind of uh, changes that you desire to see. And that in itself is interesting because um, it seems to me, you know, that has been the kind of the problem for a certain, um, you know, among within a certain kind of in left intellectual milieu for a very long time. Um, but it seems to be a problem which is gaining more widespread recognition is the absence of a political agent. And maybe that's, um, you know, I mean, that you know, it's a problem which will be familiar to people thinking through um, uh, politics on the left. But it seems perhaps given the shambolic nature of government's response and the um, and the kind of the incapacity of Western states, I suppose that lack of agency seems to be becoming more and more pronounced. Yeah, and I mean, in trying to be optimistic, or at least try to see some sort of glimmer of light, I guess the breakdown of, of neoliberalism does present some opportunities, some openings, some new dynamics, it introduces new dynamics that might be actually better. So I mean, just one 
to wrench in one thing. Yeah, that might be worse, it, though. It might be worse. It might indeed, and it might be more chaotic. But I mean, you know, China's rise and China and increasing geopolitical competition is something that maybe actually to uh, better possibly for resolution of the climate crisis. So, in one point in the book, he mentions how um, you know the European powers and and uh, and the US are discussing you know their climate and decarbonization commitments, and then China out of nowhere announces that it plans to be carbon neutral by twenty fifty or twenty sixty, completely. Uh, kind of one-upping them and uh, completely unexpectedly, you know, kind of showing much more drive and ambition than uh, a lot of the other powers had been. So maybe that le- that competition leads to m- a faster solution to the climate problem. Mm. Um, but then on the other yeah, side... It kind of other condemns, s- I mean, it kind of condemns, you know, the Chinese people what to... Um, to decades more of authoritarian single party rule and increasingly kind of grim conditions under Xi Jinping on to kind of what force the pace a bit for Western democracies. It's the kind of the taking care of business justification of the CCP. It's like you got to respect them because they get they get shit done. I mean, yeah. No, but but the point is the point is, is that that might accelerate things and focus minds. And then the other thing, of course, and this is where. We have, I guess, the most obvious point of contention with Adam, and this was very clear. And you know, he he's aware of what this criticism is. I mean, he said this quite explicitly, which is that the need, perhaps, for greater dislocations to actually happen, um, to actually lead to, in some sense, the return of politics. You know, so obviously we had this discussion over uh, the case of Italy leaving the eurozone, but there's probably other examples that one could think of as well where further breakdown is probably necessary and probably will happen for there to be a kind of rejuvenation Mm. of politics. Well, I mean, I think you have to take it very seriously what he was saying, because the, the depth of historical understanding and, and the, you know, the starting point of a lack of a lack of a historical agent or lack of a, you know, an organized working class revolutionary subject that is, that does determine the, the possibilities and the, the conditions, um, the options available. I mean, that's, you know, that was something which came through, I think, as, you know, as you've already said, was one of the the themes of um, of what he was saying. And I, I mean, this is the, the question, right? Like, so now in, in the absence of, of that kind of political or social agent, is it left to central bankers to um, successfully eliminate democratic money? I mean, that, that's, a you know, a kind of a shocking... Well, they did. I mean, that was the point. I mean, they, they did, did, they did eliminate yeah. democratic money. And now you have kind of spending, which is, um, whereas before kind of, uh, like Adam mentioned about the wage price spiral kind of driven, or as it was once called, driven by um, the demands of organized labor, that's gone. So you just have, and this is well presented in the book, I think you have this kind of enormous kind of unrestrained fiscal um, activism, which um, is just, it's not driven by any social demand, institutionalized social demand, just in response to um, an emergency and in some ways kind of making up for the lack of other possible alternatives um, that governments could have undertaken. Yeah, that's where the agency lies now. It's with central banks. And uh, as a consequence, you get things like massive corporate handouts. Adam says this clearly in the book. That was sort of the cost of these huge expenditures, like this this huge amount of money created, is that a lot of it went to those who needed it least. and and that's that's really striking. Oh no no, that's that's unfair. The the bourgeoisie and the petty bourgeoisie they they need they need money they need handouts. Come on, you've got to be fair on them. 
But then obviously what all this shows, of course, and this is, he cites Keynes kind of towards the end of the book, anything that we can do, we can afford, right? So the, all this money is being created. If it's channeled towards productive means, then we can afford it. And this whole uh, wave of crisis fighting in 2020, which is just a, a massified version of what was already a huge um, kind of crisis fighting in 2008, shows that the, it's there, right? That, that the capacities yeah. of states are there. Yeah, and I suppose I would still, I would still, um, I would still stick to the point. I think the contradiction is internal in the sense that the kind of, the kinds of global structures that have been left in place, um, as a result of the two thousand and eight crisis, and increasingly as a result of um, the um, shutdown effect on the global economy, are kind of as we talked about, they're kind of extruded beyond any. Um, meaningfully legitimate political system and that seems to me an inter you know it's a contradiction that's internal to world politics and one that makes it more difficult to resolve the problems confronting us collectively and so there's no you know there isn't i don't think that can be um wished away or muddled through and it seems to me that some kind you know that a confrontation is that some kind of confrontation between um, that kind of technocratic, those technocratic institutions precariously perched on disaffected and disenfranchised um, uh, swathes of citizens beneath them. That has to be resolved, I think. Yeah, I mean, and that, that resolution is going to be, uh, I think, quite quite disruptive. I don't think there's any way of yeah, getting around that. But I mean, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, but my, I mean, my, my personal view is that the you know that disruption it depends how you understand it and it's it will be very disruptive from the technocrats point of view but um you know i think that's that there are well disruptive will, but genuinely no, but disruptive. Genuine, i think it'll be genuinely socially disruptive just, I, and adam is very clear-sighted about this and i think we have to be as well and not try to say that you know you leave the eurozone for just to take the example that was kind of in contention in the interview that you leave the eurozone and then it's all milk and honey the following day no there's a huge amount of disruption there's a huge amount of even planned it, it ends up with there will still loss, be milk and honey power. the day after you leave the eurozone <laughs> there may be I mean, only milk and honey not... but nowhere to live you know you're subs you're subsisting off of just milk and honey at best well again but it goes well, back to the point pretty good it goes back to the point that he raised about the difficulty that our political systems have in generating legitimacy. So precisely the difficulty of, um, you know, he said the, in the kind of the example of the wartime crisis, it's entirely accepted that it is legitimate to talk in terms of social costs. That yeah, terrible mm. cost must be borne to achieve certain kind of desired goals. That, um, was, that was a very good point that it was, you know, the, and I think that's where we've had, you know, had um, Andres Malmon on previously, that idea of kind of war communism. Um, but it's not, you know, it's not the same. It's not the same. Well, but the, this is the, the point. The COVID that there situation is no, wasn't the same. You couldn't no, have but, the same sorts of, of framing of issues. And, you know, no, that, that no a, I mean, I, COVID wasn't. But the, the point being that there is, there wasn't, there wasn't a vocabulary even of, or a kind of a meaningful political discourse of even accepting the you know the far less kind of severe costs of the pandemic um let alone kind of uh, meeting the scale of the climate crisis as adam envisages it so what i suppose what i'm getting at is that it is a problem on his own terms as well right yeah the i mean that, that okay this, that it but, but i mean it's, but it also 
yeah it also speaks to the to, to the fact that there's not a um a sufficiently coherent view of society that's not a good way to put it but you, you hopefully know what i mean that these sorts of like social costs can be can be talked about so the way i think it happened personally i would say it happened with covid was like you, you didn't talk about you know social costs or, or anything like that it was just like everybody has to bear something and there was in fact a transfer of risk from one part of the population to another with the with, with the lockdowns and that's you know that was kind of uh, it happened but we didn't have the vocabulary to to talk about it or to to make those decisions politically it was just done essentially by by default and the costs were more or less clear after the event and just yeah just 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 one other thing and it's you know probably good for this reason that I wasn't asking the questions is the, the, obviously the title of the book shut down it just makes me think of this skepta song which you might or might not have, have heard and i was wondering if if adam was was listening to this as he was as he was writing it um but yeah listeners should should check that out it's it's kind of if you had a playlist that you would listen to while listening while reading the book maybe it's just this song on um on repeat but, all right well um, you, you, yeah. you've given us our outro music at least george um at least yeah it's that. good it's a good song all right uh thank you everyone for listening let us know what you think and uh we will be back once hey. again very soon catch Rise you later bye-bye when it's shut down that's not me and it's shut down ring ring pussy it's shut down hey. fashion week and it's shut down went to the show sitting in the front row in a black tracksuit and it's shut oh, down oh, touch oh. the road and it's shut down boy better know when it's shut down yeah. Yeah, take time if a man wanna try me, no time Usain Bolt when I run up on stage, I pick up the mic and it's reload time Don't know your songs but they know mine, that's why I got gigs just like Joe Grind After the show I'll be rolling mine, don't care about the no smoking sign They tried to steal my vision, this ain't a culture, it's my religion God knows I don't wanna go prison, but if a man wanna try me, trust me listen Me and my G's ain't scared of police, we don't listen to no politician Everybody on the same mission and we don't care about your ism and schisms Cause it's shut down, that's not me and it's shut down Shut down, ring ring pussy, shut down